The information in this podcast is meant for the education of clinicians in rehabilitation. This is not meant for personal medical diagnosis and treatment, and individuals should always consult an appropriate medical practitioner. Hello and welcome to APT and Neurology Section Vestibular Special Interest Group Podcast discussion on advancements in vestibular rehabilitation techniques and technologies. This is your host, Puneet Daliwal, physical therapist and vestibular rehab specialist, and I'm joined today by Major Carrie Hops. Major Hops is an active duty Army physical therapist and deputy director of the Army Baylor University Doctor Program in Physical Therapy. She graduated from Lock Haven University of Pennsylvania in 2003 and the U.S. Army Baylor Doctor Program in Physical Therapy in 2006. She completed her PhD in Rehabilitation Science in 2017 at the University of Pittsburgh. Dr. Hops is a board-certified clinical specialist in both neurologic and orthopedic physical therapy, a certified athletic trainer, and a certified strength and conditioning specialist. She has served as the chief of inpatient physical therapy at Walter Reed Army Medical Center, National Naval Medical Center Bethesda, and San Antonio Military Medical Center. She has also served as the chief of amputee physical therapy at the Military Advanced Training Center and as the officer in charge of physical therapy at the Center for the Intraped. In 2007-2008, she served in support of Operation Iraqi Freedom in Taji, Iraq. Welcome, Major Hops. It's such a pleasure to have you on the show. Thank you very much for having me, Paneet. It's uh, almost uh, seven decades since uh, vestibular rehabilitation started, and uh, we've come a long way. So where do you think the field of rehabilitation has been, and uh, what do we see uh, in the future? I think it's really exciting where we've been and where we're going. So I think it started out with just clinicians who had a knack for analyzing movement and assessing the physiology and pathophysiology of the vestibular system and discovering that movement or positioning makes these individuals feel better. And now we have so many different means of applying what we've learned from basic science studies and new technologies that we can better inform our diagnosis and interventions for folks with dizziness and imbalance. So I think it's a very exciting age right now where we're starting to combine basic science and computer technologies with what we know about movement. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, I'm, I'm expecting a big change by this technology in the face of uh, vestibular rehabilitation. At the same time, the reimbursement um, of such expensive technology is tough. You come uh, in a very uh, major setting that's uh, military, and um, in general, there's more reimbursement, there's better infrastructure based there. In, in general, when you look at all this technology, how, how do you foresee it in coming into basic clinical practice? Sure. So I think it's just an extra tool. I think there's so much we can do with our our eyes and our two hands. And and I've definitely been in places where a a good pair of portable Frenzel goggles and and some blue foam will will get you far in life. Um, But these are certainly just extra tools that I think can refine our diagnosis, um, make our clinical exams a little bit more sensitive. And when they are present, hopefully we could better identify a treatment-based classification approach for our patients and then guide them into more appropriate 
uh, interventions so that we could um, help to return them to work or to duty faster. Right. Um, are you noticing any new advanced assessment techniques uh, developed for BBPV? You already mentioned frontals, and a lot of clinics will also have the infrared uh, goggles. Um, would you discuss something on that? Sure. So I think those are just really key to identifying the the classic kind of eye movements that we would expect to see. And it's so hard in room light to really capture and appreciate those eye movements in some individuals. So the portable goggles are, are fine, but the infrared goggles often have those features of being able to record and play back. And I think that's been really important for sharing our findings and communicating our findings to other healthcare providers who might not see BPPV eye movements on a regular basis. And then it also helps to uh, train our future practitioners or students so that they can see and appreciate those eye movements and then pair that with an appropriate uh, repositioning or liberatory maneuver. Yeah, I remember the very first time I saw the goggles, uh, I was very astounded and very amazed and the eye looks pretty big and it's just so much easier to um, easily access and uh, assess the patient well and not miss anything. Now, um, are there any new equipments that are being used for the assessment purposes for BBPV other than um, the frenzels or the IR goggles? I'm not aware of any. I know the other piece of equipment that's really making its way into mainstream clinical practice is the video head impulse test, looking at those with both central and peripheral pathologies, but I'm not sure of anything else for BPPV in particular. Right. Now that you, um, this was like my next question for you about the video head impulse test. First of all, um, please tell what is a video head impulse test? Sure. So there's a couple different manufacturers that make different variations, but these could either be um, goggles that provide either a monocular or binocular image of the uh, pupil with some tracking software. And so basically the camera is receiving a reflection of the individual's pupil and this computer software can then track the pupil. So when you perform your clinical head impulse test with that rapid head thrust, you're able to capture both kind of overt or easily recognizable uh, psychotic eye movements, but also those ones that are, that are hidden uh, from, from the naked eye and might be um, helpful in, in identifying those with a, a unilateral or a bilateral weakness. Um, and how is it different than the clinical test of rapid head thrust? You know, so that's that's a great question. I've been told that it often takes a 40% weakness, uh, caloric weakness, to, to really capture or appreciate a uh, clinical head impulse test. And I don't know if that's actually true or not, but there's definitely, you know, the, the chance that um, we might miss seeing some of those more subtle eye movements. And so this just really helps refine and, and make our exam more, more sensitive. Um, so I think it's definitely going to be a tool that we're going to see in more clinics. Um, there's definitely an interest in those that are uh, exploring uh, biomarkers for mild traumatic brain injury or concussion. So I think there's a, a room for this in mainstream practice and, and folks are currently trying to figure out, well, how do we use this and how do we bill for it and what will it change about our clinical decision making? How expensive is this? 
You know, that's a great question. I've actually been trying to acquire a pair for our clinic down here in San Antonio. Um, and so I believe they're a couple thousand dollars, but I think they range in price, whether you're looking at imaging one eye or two. Um, and and they're, you know, fairly affordable given given the abilities that they have, the capabilities they add to our clinical exam. Yeah, I'm, I'm sure, especially because um, how uh, the move, movement went down from frontal goggles to IR goggles, and now it has become like an accepted practice in majority of vestibular clinics. I'm, I'm sure VHIT will be probably the next thing. You already mentioned, um, though uh, you said that it's not totally true about ha- assessing 40% weakness with like uh, a rapid head thrust. Um, how does VHIT, other than improving um, just the access to having assessment for proper eye movement, how does it improve the accuracy in these conditions? Like, can we record this as well, just in case we want to go back and check it? You surely can. So I think it's uh, really helpful that you get this quantitative printout. So normally in clinic, we might perform, you know, several repetitions side to side. We try to do a random order so that our patient can't predict which direction we'll be doing our our quick head thrust so that they can't kind of throw that saccade there to to hide an impairment. And so this really gives you an ability to quantitatively look at that, go back and study it. Um, You can record from um, all three canals. I think that's um, often a challenge in the clinic to really uh, provide the necessary amplitude and, and the, the direction, but uh, the more you do it, the, the easier it becomes. Um, it, it seems to be more applicable in the research environment than in the clinical environment, but hopefully we can refine that technology or our own provider skills and, and become uh, more adept at, at doing those other uh, canal planes. Mm-hmm. Sounds very interesting to me. I haven't seen one of these, but I've definitely seen videos of this. And um, they seem great, especially to assess the posterior canals and other than just doing the horizontal canal like we usually do in the clinic. Now, right. uh, my, my further question to you is this, that would it also assist in, in diagnosing or differentiating between peripheral and central vestibular conditions? So the only central conditions I'm aware of that have been researched are concussion. I think we've also seen that we can have value in the head impulse test looking at uh, posterior circulation strokes. So using our our HINTS criteria that uh, Dr. Katah put forward so that that head impulse test would be negative in some of these uh, kind of stroke pathologies. So I think there's definitely a opportunity to further investigate both central and peripheral mechanisms. Have you used this equipment yourself? So right now we're actually looking at a study of some community-dwelling elderly individuals. It's a project that uh, Dr. Mark Lester from Texas State University is the primary investigator on. And so we are going to different retirement communities and also bringing uh, community-dwelling older adults to our uh, programs, laboratory facilities, and looking at 10 repetitions uh, for each of the canal planes. So on my good day, I try to do, you know, 30 head thrusts for our older adults, Mm -hmm. but not every 
everyone has the perfect timing and amplitude that the system requires, and some are rejected. Mm -hmm. So I spend quite a bit of time uh, turning the heads of our of our local elderly <laughs> folks, and so it'll be really interesting to see um, how this one measure as part of a com comprehensive battery of falls risk measures um, might predict those that have some kind of subclinical um, impairments, but kind of weakness in the vestibular system here and a little bit of decreased sensation in the somatosensory system there, um, you know, previous history of falls, polypharmacy, how do all these risk factors interplay, and, and I think it'll be really interesting to see uh, Dr. Lester's results in the future. Mm. Was it easy to use? It was very it easy to use. Okay. It is. So it takes minimal time to set up. The goggles are um, uh, fitted with a uh, one-time uh, foam interface, so that is giving the patient a little bit more comfort. It uh, helps with infection control policies in our clinics and hospitals. And so they place these goggles on much like a pair of racquetball goggles. Um, sometimes you can uh, just kind of move the eyelid and the eyebrow up a little bit just to, to handle a drooping eyelid that might be impairing the view of the, the pupil clearly. And then the <laughs> system really lets you put in a, a patient identifier or a subject number, and then you can specify how many repetitions you'd like to perform. And it provides you with real-time feedback if you're going too slow or you're in the wrong plane of the canals and then you try to continue to do your repetitions till you get uh, enough clean uh, head impulses that it can analyze. Oh, that sounds wonderful. Now, um, one more, the next question that I have for you is about what is the sensory motor assessment and rehabilitation apparatus? So, uh, yeah, Dr. Michael Schubert and colleagues at Johns Hopkins University have pioneered a device where the patient is wearing almost like the, the old uh, 3D uh, uh, glasses that you might wear for a movie with one red and one blue lens. And they're presented with uh, two lines that are either misaligned in the vertical plane or in the torsional plane. And the subject is asked to bring those into alignment. So when they're looking through these color matched red and blue filters, they're asked to do these kind of nulling tasks where they're asked to take a line that's out of alignment and put it back into alignment. And so they're asked to perceive, you know, where where do you think horizontally aligned is uh, or vertically, uh, I'm sorry, horizontally or, um, wow, vertically or torsionally aligned is, and this is a measure then of, of vertical and torsional ocular misalignment. So this um, kind of subtle skew uh, deviation that we could pick up. Now, uh, when, they, when they use this, do they also tend to use the ocular tilt test as well, or they just use this and that does not require us to use the ocular tilt test? So this would be a more sensitive measure of doing our cover-uncover or cross-cover, kind of that alternate cover test, and that you can quantify real subtle changes in ocular misalignment. So uh, the goal is to actually take what he has now in this tablet and actually using some of our Army uh, Military Advanced Technology Initiative funds, um, try to put this into um, a, a head-mounted display. Um, or some other means that it will become more portable and won't require a dark examination room to perform the test. So it's pretty exciting. 
Hmm. Can um, can this all, other than like checking for skew, uh, does it also help diagnose any other ocular motor conditions, or this the primary function is to assess the, the skew deviation? Yep. So the or primary um, the primary use would be to quantify that perceived vertical and torsional ocular misalignment. Okay. Now um, in military. Um, like you mentioned already, like this concussion, this head injury. Now, does the mechanism of injury in conditions um, such as concussion or traumatic brain injuries, does that play a major role in assessment um, for our patients? So I think there's definitely a difference in how someone with a blast versus a blunt uh, injury might might present. Um, oftentimes we see kind of more uh, global impairments in, in sensory integration and, and balance initially in our blast injured folks. They have this kind of slow gait speed, adopting more of an on-block presentation. Um, you certainly can see some of those same effects following a, a direct uh, blow as well. Um, but I think we're still kind of trying to better understand or elucidate how the, the mechanisms may be different in these two populations. So I think they are different, and we're still trying to figure out why and how, and that's continuing uh, to emerge. Um, we know from the sports literature that often that size of the big hit doesn't always uh, directly compare to the, the clinical signs and symptoms we see, where sometimes a really big hit uh, may not be injurious at all or maybe. Uh, uh, we might not be able to detect that or perceive those deficits at this point in time. Maybe in the future we'll have more sensitive measures. Um, and other times what looks like a, a small brush to a, a linebacker or a, a center fielder, you know, banging into a, another player might be uh, not perceived as a large force, but uh, that individual presents with a much different picture and then they're much uh, more disabled or debilitated uh, from their injuries. So uh, I think we're continuing to explore both of those, looking at measures for assessment and then uh, prevention measures, protection measures, both for athletes and for service members and first responders. So it's, it's certainly a field where there's, there's lots of room for research. Now, have there been any new technologies that have been developed, especially for military personnel, for superior assessment in these conditions? So in the past, they actually have looked at some different blast gauges. These are about the size of a quarter. Uh, they're typically placed on the back of the helmet, the, the non-firing shoulder, and the center of the chest. And the purpose of these was to look at the forces that uh, individuals might be exposed to following uh, blast injury uh, or blast exposure and seeing, you know, what's the what, what matters as far as proximity or environment and how might that affect uh, pressure waves and then barotrauma uh, as a result of that. So that's been studied in the past. Um, there's been advances as far as uh, vehicle designs and helmets and body armor uh, so that we can better protect um, our service members and then often seeing the same equipment carrying over into those that do um, you know, special weapons and tactics, our SWAT teams and, and local law enforcement as well. So um, definitely um, an area that's heavily researched. And any particular technological advances in like patients with uh, post-traumatic migraines or multi-debarkment or meniere's in your knowledge? 
Sure. So there's been some exciting work uh, coming out for mounted abarkment. Um, and, and so really, uh, Dr. Dai, uh, she's looking at uh, trying to quantify that self-perceived rocking motion or the frequency of that self-perceived sway and then exposing the person to optokinetic stripes that you would see in a, um, in a rotary chair. And so providing that optokinetic stimuli while the person's head is moved in the role plane at that same self-perceived frequency. And so I think she's seen some um, decrease in both that perceived rocking as well as in the actual postural stability that can be measured. Um, and so that's really exciting. Um, so other folks are also looking at um, could we use transcranial stimulation, whether that's magnetic, so transcranial magnetic stimulation, or um, transcranial direct current stimulation, or transcranial alternating current stimulation to kind of change the neurological uh, environment, you know, is, is this a way to do neuromodulation? So could we change uh, the way the brain is, is uh, operating and make it more perceptive or responsive to our physical therapy interventions? So this might be something where we're kind of priming the nervous system to receive our gaze stability or our adaptation type exercises or maybe habituation exercises or balance and gait activity. So I think that's exciting too. Uh, Yoon Hee Cha is doing a lot of work in that area as well. Now, all of this is still at the clinical, as, as is at the research level, or is it also being applied to uh, clinics as well, uh, or there it's just very early stages of research? I think it's still in, in mostly the research environment. Um, you know, there's some portable devices that have been uh, put to the market looking at ways to um, perhaps stimulate uh, the vestibular system. So whether it be, um, you know, a, a tactile device that's placed on the tongue like the brain port device or the portable uh, neuromodulation stimulator device, the, the PONS device. And, um, Brainport was really designed as more of a vibrotactile feedback, uh, placed more centrally to decrease the time that it took to get the signals from the periphery uh, to those central processing mechanisms for balance responses. Uh, the PONS has been marketed more as a device for neuromodulation of you know, changing the, the physiology of the, the, the brainstem in the brain so that it's uh, more conducive to therapy. And so those are available um, for purchase and clinics can use those. Um, I think more work is needed to determine if they um, hasten recovery um, or how they would be implemented into, into clinical practice if they're necessary or not necessary. Um, so that's, that's definitely, um, you know, on the front. Um, George Serador at, at Rutgers, he's looking at a means to use um, galvanic stimulation that's applied through the, the earlobes to provide kind of some, some increased background noise to the system. So if your system's not very responsive to vestibular clues and, and messages, if we add this extra layer of noise or signal in, does that kind of boost or amplify the true signal so that our bodies uh, can better perceive it and then use that information for, um, you know, walking and balance tasks and perhaps even gaze stability. Um, so I think it's, it's definitely making its way from the research to the clinic, and we'll see more of these type of devices in the future. 
Yeah, it it does sound very, very exciting, especially because there are still a few cases. I'm talking about as much experience I I have had. There are some cases, even if it's peripheral dysfunction, um, and uh, the patients do not respond completely. There's still some deficits that remain, and I'm I'm very hopeful that these advanced technologies can like take us to that next level, such that we can hit that um, that 100% recovery in those cases. Uh, it could be the priming the system or um, and then training our patients. I mean, it all sounds super exciting. Now. Along with um, changes in the vestibular function, how about the balance uh, component? Have there been any new technologies on that? Yeah, so I think we're seeing different devices to try to challenge that vestibulospinal system and that sensory integration system. So there's different devices, and whether it's, you know, a uh, a force plate or some type of mechanism that allows you to change somatosensory input or alter that in some way. Um, you know, different fancy ways to do what we do in the clinic of, of putting you on some type of unstable surface like foam. So, um, you know, we, we see different balance devices. They try to make it more fun so that you're standing on the device and maybe you get visual feedback or auditory feedback or vibrotactile feedback. Oftentimes there's some type of gaming device where you're asked to move a character through a video game so that you can weight shift or um, try to maintain your balance within some preset limits of stability. So I think there's different means to, to try to challenge you uh, statically, um, maybe dynamically, and then provide some type of engagement to um, make rehab fun and engaging um, and to have better compliance with our, with our treatments then. Now, with the new technological advances, um, does computerized dynamic posturography still have a role in assessment? I think it does. Right now, it's still considered that gold standard for looking at that integration of visual, vestibular, and somatosensory information. Um, you know, there's there's other competing groups like Burtech that has now decided instead of using uh, what Neurocom had previously used, uh, that that kind of pink mountains and, and teal blue waters of that visual surround moving that Burtech has applied this immersive virtual reality where you can change it from supermarket scenes and optokinetic stripes to planes flying, you know, over the over the earth and, and provide different visual uh, inputs and at the same time look at postural sway. So um, I think it's it's definitely changing. Um, there's groups that are looking to pare it down and make it more portable. Um, whether that same technology can be delivered with a force plate and a head-mounted display instead of something with a much larger footprint like the the Neurocom and Burtech devices, um, and that might make it more portable and accessible, especially to those in in more rural environments or those with don't have the budget or the space for those bigger items. So um, I think we're still going to see different qualitative, uh, I'm sorry, quantitative assessments of, of postural sway uh, having a role in, in, in looking at our individuals with uh, complaints of imbalance. Now, when it comes to virtual reality, you know, the system itself is very provoking, even for someone who does not suffer from a vestibular condition. Now, do you think, is it an appropriate technology for patients with vestibular conditions? 
I think it is. You know, we've seen a, a lot of work come out of Marissa Pavlou's work um, looking at immersive virtual reality or exposure to optic flow and optokinetic stimuli. There's been different groups across the world that have looked at that. And um, this idea that, um, you know, we can stimulate peripheral vision, central field of view, and individuals that are very visually dependent and see if we can modify that sensory reweighting. Um, so I think it's very exciting. I don't think we understand the the central mechanisms uh, quite yet or, or what the dosage or exercise prescription might be. But I think we all find that those that complain of these visually induced dizziness or visual vertigo symptoms do really well with this uh, visual habituation approach, whether that's delivered, uh, you know, on something low tech, like, you know, looking at your uh, golf umbrella spinning or, or your computer tablet versus something that has a much wider field of view. Uh, I think knowing those neural pathways, there's something to be had for that peripheral stimulation, and that might be, um, you know, better captured in a head-mounted display or maybe some type of immersive dome or environment when you're using, um, you know, a disco ball or, or other uh, optokinetic ball. So I, I think there's going to be a much uh, greater role for this as we try to work on those type of visually induced dizziness complaints. Yeah, I, I am. I'm always skeptical for uh, VR, especially in patients who are like having post-traumatic migraines. They are so sensitive to even general introduction of um, vision exercises or uh, training them on vestibular reflex exercises, optic kinetic stimulation, and um, I was wondering if you. Uh, personally or in or in your knowledge, do you know of any use of virtual reality in special populations like concussion or TBI or maybe migraines to enhance their vestibular function? Sure. So we're actually looking at a at a case series of individuals here, uh, specifically at the Center for the Intrepid, where we um, are, are very blessed with a very large system, the Computerized Assisted Rehab Environment, or the Karen, where there's this large virtual reality dome with a treadmill in the middle that can, can move in many different directions, and um, doing progressive exposure to a walking scene uh, down some city streets. And so the buildings have a lot of complexity to them visually, uh, lots of lines and stripes and patterns and kind of this rich uh, visual scene, we can add cars that go by and people that are walking by on the streets and really taking our time with the individuals with um, central disorders, and, and that includes our migraineurs, um, of doing just really progressive exposure. Um, I had a lady in the clinic there today uh, with a migraine disorder and just standing in that space, uh, you know, for a few minutes and then going and taking a, a rest break, turning away from the, the virtual reality environment and, and, and sitting and, uh, you know, letting both our visually induced symptoms of headache and nausea and dizziness and fogginess settle, but also that anxiety component that can often be there as well. Uh, and then going back in again and just really being careful with the amount of, uh, 
dosage they receive and, and monitoring them closely for kind of a rebound effect a few hours later uh, that evening to see, you know, how they tolerated that treatment. So um, I think it's a very cognitively taxing environment and they just have to be given ample recovery time for that. Um, but it seems to be very effective. Um, we've had good luck in uh, anywhere from four to six sessions with these individuals of, of walking bouts of about 10 minutes duration. So um, somewhere between three and four minute, uh, three and four minute bouts initially working up to 10 continuous minutes and then providing seated rest breaks and trying to do about four sets of that. So uh, we're looking to explore that in the future, adding functional brain imaging to see how they're, the individuals are cognitively responding to these tasks and hopefully that'll help us assess and, and monitor these individuals better. Wow, that sounds super, super interesting. And plus, it's like uh, great. Uh, I, I was not aware that that there was such a success because it can take weeks to have a patient improve a traditional therapy to move on from like at least 30 seconds to like a one minute to a two minute to a five minute exposure level to optokinetic stimulus. And if VR can really introduce that, I think the recovery phase is going to be really short and they'll be able to get back to their activities. Wow, that's, that's very, very cool. Yeah, I think it's it's really exciting. I, I think the ultimate goal will be this precision medicine. And what is it about that individual patient that can better inform the clinician's um, ability to identify the problem and prescribe the most appropriate treatment. So, you know, what are their personal factors that are involved or genetic factors? You know, in the future, will we be doing genetic testing to identify particular markers that we know might respond to a certain classification treatment? Um, you know, what will that entail? Will they be doing some type of, of blood test to identify concussion or a functional brain imaging to help identify impaired connectivity in a region? And then do we monitor that in real time in the clinic while we're providing some type of neuromodulation before the treatment begins or we're using tactile feedback or vibratory type uh, insoles or vibrating belts? Or will it be some type of neuromodulation that, that helps kickstart that rehab process or makes that, uh, that individual uh, have a, have an anatomical or physiological, more conducive environment to receiving our, our physical therapy and knowing exactly how many repetitions and minutes and sets of our, our interventions should we be dosing? And, and then when do we know when they're better? Is it just self-report? Is it going to be the dizziness handicapped inventory? Is it going to be some type of biomarker? Um, is it gait speed? Is it, is it markers that are going to be, um, you know, more easily uh, used and, and implemented in the clinic, like inertial measurement units. So very exciting. I, I think the future yes. holds a lot of possibilities. I absolutely agree with you. I think uh, I wouldn't say traditional uh, physical therapy or traditional vestibular rehab is going to be out, but I think the adjunct of like advanced technologies is just going to take it to a next level. Well, Carrie, this was so much fun talking to you. It was such an uh, interesting uh, talk. I have uh, very great hopes for our future, and thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you so much for having me. I really appreciate it.